Welcome to New Life Downtown Sunday School, November 17, 2013. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for this day. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness, God. We thank you for your word and that you've brought us understanding and revelation in it and through it. And in all these things, Lord, we just ask that you be glorified in our discussion today, that your truth would be known, Lord God, Father, that it would set our hearts just free, free to, free to burn, free to desire, free to be blessed in you, Lord God. And that in all these things, you would just receive the glory for your, for your great wisdom and your great mystery in, in the heavens, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, pull it out to Samuel, the book of Samuel, and just hang out there for a sec. Sorry, I had to grab my Bible, too. Um, real quick, I'm going to recap what we've been talking about. We're going to jump into what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to peace out a little bit early because Glenn's not here, but you guys are going to do kind of like a, a finishing assignment at the end. It'll be thrilling. Just wait. So um, we've been talking about the Bible as literature. Just anything that's written as literature. If you haven't been here, I'm just going to briefly discuss some of it. Anything that is written as literature. So if you get a pamphlet from some guy on the street, it's a piece of literature. If you buy a book from Barnes and Noble, literature as well. So the Bible is literature in its types, and there are three types of literature that we've been discussing are in the Bible. Who here remembers what those three types of literature are? It's imperative for understanding today's lesson. Three types of literature. I know you guys have been sitting here. Narrative. So narrative is the first one. Uh, the bulk of the Bible is written in narrative. Almost all the Old Testament, all of the Gospels, Acts, they're all narrative. So it's just a story. So they're writing a story about something, whether it's a historical story, prophetic story, anything. It's narrative. Another type of literature within the Bible. Say what? you got to speak louder, bro. Good. Perfect. Poetry. Poetry is usually not that long within the scriptures. The entire wisdom literature is basically made up of poetry. So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, um, Lamentations, poetry. Do you guys remember how we know it's poetry? The, the researchers have done indented. So if you guys look at Samuel, because I'm sure you opened there like I asked, chapter one in your columns, it all goes coast to coast. So the text fills up the entire width of the column. So it's telling you that it's not poetry. If you look at chapter two, oh look, it's all indented on either side, which is Bible translators' way of tipping us off to say you're reading poetry. They've been very kind because they understand Hebrew. Thank you, Bible translators. And so that's how we know that it's poetry. So we have narrative, we have poetry, and the last type of, type of literature within the scriptures, it's like almost everything after Acts. Letters! Thank you. Fancy theologians will call it discourse or something along those lines, but that's what it is. It's letters. So it's a type of literature. It's not a narrative where it's a full story. It's not a poem. It's a letter that I'm writing from one person to another. So those are the types of literature within, within the scriptures. So we talked about that in week one. These are types, when we ask questions about the author, when we ask questions about the text, they're going to help us figure out things. For instance, what we talked about in week one was the book of Genesis. Who's writing Genesis? It's Moses. When is he writing it? He's writing it sometime when they're in the wilderness. Who is he writing it to? Probably the Israelites. Um, where is he writing it? Again, in the wilderness during their 40 years of wandering. So that context of just asking some questions about who wrote it, 
where they wrote it, why they wrote it, some of those things, will help us understand some of the motive behind what they're saying. Week two, last week, we talked about repeated words. Um, turns out more of you guys are fans of Once Upon a Time than the show 24, which is respectable, because Once Upon a Time is fantastic, as we know. Do you watch it, Carl? Come on. Kill me. This is going to be lost on you, then. But repeated words. It happens in movies. It happens most in TV shows, because you have like a half an hour or an hour and then it resets until the next week, where they're gonna repeat something in that show to give you an idea of the theme, or of the motive of characters and whatnot. So, Down Abbey, did you watch that one, Carl? Can I make this claim? Okay, Down Abbey. Down Abbey, it's repeatedly continued through the series that the idea of Down Abbey. So why are they doing things? Because of Down Abbey. What is their motive? Down Abbey. What is the theme throughout Down Abbey? Down Abbey. It's all like self-centered and self-focused on itself, and it's self-motivated. So any action they do, whether it's having a business or building a f farms or having babies, it's all because of Down Abbey. And once upon a time, they repeat themes like uh, all magic comes with a price. It's this repeated theme through so many of the episodes, and it's just letting us know that a lot of the story is going to flow out of this idea that there is magic and it comes with a price, and therefore events will flow out of that idea, as well as the little boy Henry. He's a motive for like everything in that show, to the point where it annoys my wife. It's all about this little boy, who's not Jesus. According to the show, at least yet, they haven't told us that yet. So, so if we ask and we look for repeated words, repeated phrases, or repeated ideas, it's going to tell us some meaning in the scriptures, saying, okay, so because of the way that you, re the repetition of it, they're not just going to say it once and think, well, I'm sure the audience got my main point because I said it once. They're going to say, no, I'm going to repeat it so that we get it because that's what we need. This week I want to talk a little bit about structure and how structure conveys meaning. Um, and I'm going to start with a little bit of story. How many of us have seen, let's say, Gladiator or The Matrix? Holler, holler. How many? You guys remember seeing Matrix in the theater when it was like... I'm going to play off of that right now. In The Matrix, which one's more popular, Gladiator or The Matrix? Everybody seen The Matrix? Has anybody not seen The Matrix? Oh, okay. We'll continue on with The Matrix. No, this is not as good as the story as Gladiator. Gladiator's more epic, so we'll go with Gladiator. In Gladiator, do you remember seeing it the first time and getting to those climactic points and thinking, like, this is amazing. Like, this is absolutely incredible. And then maybe you saw it another time in theater, and it was still amazing, and you rented it when it came out on VHS, because that's when it came out back in that day. And you put it in, and like, there was that one scene that you loved, so you like, fast-forwarded to that one scene, and you just watched that one scene, whatever it was. And after time and after watching it, maybe, just maybe, it didn't have quite the same effect or the same emotions or the same emphasis. It was still cool. It was still Maximus killing... Um, Johnny Cash. <laughs> it was still cool, but maybe it wasn't quite as impressive. And what I'm going to pitch today is that structure and understanding parts of a story within a structure of a story present to us meaning and emphasis and, and really encapsulate what the author is trying to say or what the, the movie maker is trying to say. Because if we just take the scene that Maximus kills Joaquin Phoenix, whatever his character's name is, and we just watch that, it's still cool. It's fighting, it's swords, it's the Colosseum, it's really sweet. 
But if we just isolate that from the rest of the three hours of the story, there's not you know, two hours and 45 minutes of backlog and story and emotion and build up and, and, and tie-in and like investment from us when we get to that one point to make it as grand as it could have been otherwise. It's pretty much in any movie. I mean, have you guys ever done that where you had a movie you loved it and you watched that one scene and it just wasn't as cool if it wasn't suspended within two hours of watching the whole of the movie? For some reason, when Mel Gibson yells out freedom, it's not quite as impactful if you don't watch out why he's yelling out freedom. The structure of a story is going to give emotion and give emphasis and meaning to both the high points, the climaxes, as well as the low points. And if we steal those points out of the structure, then anything building up, the first 10 steps that get us to the high point at step 11, we've lost that emphasis and it falls flatter than it should have. So we're going to look at that a little bit today and we're going to look at it in the book of Samuel because Samuel does it really well. So, quick comment. Samuel, how many books is Samuel? According to our tradition, two. According to the beautiful Jews who wrote it, it's just one. The book of Samuel. So any, they have this order called the Tanakh order. So first and second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, all those, they just condensed into one book. And we're going to see kind of how their structure plays out within this book. So what I want us to do is to step through Samuel real quick to build kind of a, where is he emphasizing things? And seeing what is narrative and what is poetry. And first questioning, did he put a structure within the book of Samuel? So a structure, is Samuel just a book that happened to be written? And he just kind of recorded as he went along, and there was no theme, and there was no purpose, and there was no motive for him writing. He was just recording it. And so because of that, there was no structure. Or was it after all of those events, and he's looking back and he's saying, this is what happened, and I'm going to put a structure in there, which is then going to present a, an idea of a theme. So you see high points and you see low points. So let's walk through. And what we're going to look for just right now is the type and how he structured the type within the book of Samuel. Chapter 1, narrative or, dis or poetry. I've already answered this one for you. Chapter two, narrative or poetry? Poetry. So it, there's a chunk of poetry. So keep that in mind, and if you're taking notes, write that down. Okay, so it starts with narrative, and then it goes to poetry. And then just flip through until you see the next poetry section. Just keep going. It's going to take a while. And when you get there, tell me what it is. Say it louder. Second Samuel chapter 1. What a great place to break the book up. Saul dies. We see that. Or Samuel dies in chapter 25. Saul will eventually die. Death of Saul, chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. So, okay. That seems like a complete good stopping point for the story. Saul dies. Stop. Start again. Oh, look. Chapter 1. There's some narrative. And then there's some poetry. Perfect. So, so far as we're building the structure, a little bit of narrative, poetry, a long chunk of narrative, an end of a major event, Saul dying, poetry, and then tell me where the next poetry part is in this book. Keep going. David mourns Abner, if you see that in chapter three, but the big chunk of poetry.
2 Samuel 22. Yep. And into 23 because it's two sections where David speaks as well. And then, does it finish the books out of Samuel with poetry or narrative? Narrative. So within this, if you caught it, and if you need to write it out, visualize it this way. Little narrative, poetry, lot of narrative, poetry, lot of narrative, poetry, little narrative. It's, it's a symmetrical form that he's put within this book, which I think is really cool. I mean, right there, it's going, oh, this dude was thinking ahead and saying, let, us, let me structure this in a way that just like a movie has a structure, introduction of characters, some sort of plot point that needs conflict, we have development, rising action, climax, resolution. I mean, that's a basic story structure. He's saying, I'm going to structure this with types. What we're looking at, I'm going to akin a little bit to all my musical fans in the house. Or Silo, I know you're one of them. Who loves musicals? Holler, holler. And I'm not saying like Les Mis because that's awesome, but the whole thing is singing, so it's only one type of speech. I'm talking about like Grease or, you know, High School Musical or something that's better than those musicals. And what they do is they talk and there's dialogue and it goes for however long. And then all of a sudden they switch type and they break out into song. And you're going, all right. And then they come down from the song and there's dialogue and the story progresses. And then they break out into song again. And it... it flows back and forth between two types of dialogue and speeching. Just talk, dialogue, and then music. And it's kind of what's, what the writer, whoever the writer of Samuel is, tradition says we don't really know, it's kind of what they're doing. And they're saying, I'm going to give you a little narrative, and then I'm going to break the form and have a song in the midst of it. I'm going to have a poem in the midst of this narrative story. In the midst of a musical, when do the songs happen? Like generally what's going on? Is it a high point? Is it a low point? What are the emotions? What, what's happening in the story generally? And start thinking through this. When in Greece or in, I don't know, what's a good musical? I'm trying to think of. Sound of Music? Did someone say? That's a, My Fair Lady? Perfect. You know, those classical ones. Singing in the Rain, The Music Man, any of those. Like generally during those times when it breaks the dialogue, form and it breaks out into song, what, what, is, what are they expressing or what's happening in the movie? Is there, a, is there a standard thing that's being expressed through those? I have a theory, but I want to see if, if you guys track with it. High emotion? Flesh that out a little bit, because I totally agree. Right. Exactly. So there's a series of events that happens and the characters kind of need to somehow get it out. There needs to be this expressive moment of what do we do with all these? And so they break out into song and dance, which is awesome for us as viewers, but it also highlights a little bit of the emotions and the storyline of what's going on. I'm not just going to keep tracking with this. I'm going to break the form to highlight what I'm trying to say. Any other moments within movies and stuff, musicals specifically, that they break the form? When there's emotion and then... I'm going to suggest. Right. When there's morning grieving, so like a low point in the movie. Uh, I'm thinking of Grease, because I love that movie. When Danny gets dumped at the drive-in, and he just breaks out into, stranded at the drive-in, branded as a fool. And it, it, there's this low point of emotion, so not just 
a high point, but also low points in the movie where they're like, man, I need to express kind of the depths of where I am in the song. So instead of dialogue, they break that form and they break out into song. It's incredible. Or I would say um, when there's high emotion, there's a low point, or also when there's a high point is when they're going to break out into song. They've resolved everything and the hills are alive with the sound of music. So I frolic through them and I sing about them. This, this is so great. I'm just, it's so great. It's so climactic that I need to sing and I need to break form to emphasize that singing. Bringing it back to Samuel, to a degree, he's doing something similar and saying, when I'm reading narrative and then I break out of that form and say poetry, I'm trying to emphasize something that's going on in the book. Real quick before we look at those specifics of what those, these poem sections say, let's talk a little bit about, from what we know without studying through the whole book of Samuel right now, what do we know, who are the main characters, and what are the main things that kind of happen in the book of Samuel? Hoping you guys have read it before. It's a good book, if not. <laughs> Boom! That's pretty much it. David and Saul. Like, who, who starts the book? Who, who's the character that starts it? Samuel. He's a huge role in this giant book. He's in there for like seven whole chapters. It's fantastic. And then he disappears and he comes back. And towards the end of the first, he dies. It's incredible. But, so we have Samuel. And what is Samuel's role within the book? Because it's going to lead right into what you said, Brooks. Who is Samuel within this book? He's the prophet. He kind of is over Israel as that prophetic voice. And within the monarchy that becomes Israel, what, what is his role within those? Boom. He anoints the kings. He's the guy set apart to say, Samuel, you're my voice. You're my mouthpiece. Even it starts with, there were not many words and visions in those days. Voice comes. He raises up. The people get real you know, jealous of the, all the nations around him. They're like, we want a king. Samuel says, Lord, it's not a good idea. And the Lord says, give them what they want. If they want a king, give them a king. And he's the guy that anoints the first two kings of Israel. He anoints Saul. He anoints David. The entirety of Samuel is about Saul and David. I want to back us up because we're seeing this little form already. Samuel anointing kings of Israel. Perfect. Back it up. What's the book before Samuel? Ruth. In the Jewish order, and we'll talk more about this next week, Ruth is actually after Proverbs. <sighs> Why could that be? We'll talk about it next week. What's the book before Ruth? What's the last line in the book of Judges? If you, you can look it up. You can cheat. That's okay. If you have it, say it louder. Is that it? Really? <laughs> You're the second half of the line. So it's a, it's a two-parter. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges is this narrative of Israel looking for a righteous judge to deliver them. I'm just going to say, it's talking about historical judges, but it's also kind of this, we're looking for a judge to judge us righteously. Okay? The whole Old Testament, you know when Jesus says the law and the prophets are about me? It's all this kind of Intensive, we're looking for this one person. And it ends with, in those days, there was no king. Everyone did was right in his own eyes. And so if you go right from that into Samuel, what you're kind of set up with is the last idea that you have in your mind is, oh, there's no king. And then what do you get? Kings. Perfect. David, Saul, all that stuff. So if the emphasis being set up for Samuel 
by the structure of these books and saying it's not just one book together, but it's Judges into Samuel, and Samuel will bleed into Kings, and Kings will, the whole thing is one narrative. That first poem, let's turn to Samuel, chapter 2, and look at the first poem. The first section where I'm saying, if this is like a musical, if we're being set up for kingship, if what we understand about Samuel is the first character, prophet, who does what? Anoints kings, and the rest of the story is about kings, these first two kings. Israel looking for a king just like they were looking for a judge. That first section that they break out into in Hannah's prayer I want you guys to skim through it real quick and see if in this discussion of a theme within Samuel being projected through the structure, if there's anything within that that discusses kings or a king or anything like that. Hannah's prayer in Samuel chapter 2. Okay, what's it say? He will give power to his king and lift up the horn of his anointed one. A couple things that are fascinating to me, just because I've thought about them and I've looked through them already. Judges ends with, there was no king. Okay, there was no king. Right, so why are we talking about kings? She's in this prayer at a time when there is still no idea of king. The people haven't even asked for a king yet. And yet she is saying within this prayer, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Or some translations will say anointed one. Okay. So even in these emphasized parts, is that a word, emphasized? Perfect. Emphasized parts. There is this highlighting of kingship. He will exalt the power of his anointed one. He will give strength to his king. Skip over all the narrative, because all the narrative right there, Samuel anointing Saul as king. So we're set up for this idea of kingship in that song part. Skip over to that first chapter of 2 Samuel. I find, I find, I'll just find this all fascinating. I hope you guys too. First chapter of 2 Samuel, at the end of 1 Samuel, that's where Saul dies. That's why they cut the book right there, because it makes sense. If our two main characters of Samuel are Saul and David, Saul dies, let's talk about David now. Great. We get a song. If you got, read through this real quick, do this work, read through it, and what does he talk about in the song? Does he talk about kingship? What is, the, what is the general tone of the song? What is the general theme of the psalm that he says right here in, the, in, the, in this poetry section? Right. Saul and Jonathan dying. I mean, we're at this crux of the story where if we're saying, like a musical, song breaks out at high points, low points, or expressions of emotions, and this he's doing it somewhat prophetically. So we get this set up, there's a structure in Samuel, narrative, poetry, narrative, poetry, narrative, poetry, narrative. 
We start from, if we're looking at judges, looking at kingship, we start with the first expression where it breaks the form and saying, we're looking for a king. He will exalt his king and the anointed one. That's, that's who we're looking for. We get their first king, and then we get to this point. Is this a high point or a low point in the story? Low point. He's, he's basically breaking form to express this, like, grievous low point. We're looking for a king, and this first one who was anointed of Israel died. Let us break out and just express this emotion, express this almost, as we're still looking, who is this anointed one? Who is the king of Israel? Maybe it wasn't this first guy. Let's grieve through that. And David does an amazing job of upholding anointed through the whole theme, the theme of Samuel. Okay, let's fast forward. This is all of David's life as king, both good and bad, to chapter 22 of 2 Samuel. The next and final poetic section. And in that poetic section, look through, it's a little bit longer, but look through and see just what is he talking about and then is kingship referenced? I'm sorry, you're going to have I'm, I'm deaf. Attributes the characteristics of the king to God. So he's discussing. These are the characteristics of the king. The king whom David, I mean, David is king of Israel, but he's saying characteristics of the king. This is, this is it. Okay, I like it. Any other kingship ideas or lines that you may have seen in that first poem? Anywhere in this? Chapter 51, verse 51 of chapter 22. Great salvation he brings to his king. I'm sorry, I'm reading a different translation. And shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. If you read some of the story and fill in one of these blanks, there's this covenant made to David that through him the king will arise into Israel. But I just want to maybe ask this question. If he's attributing these certain traits... That's a great point. Traits of the king. And then he ends it just like it start looking, saying, the king and his anointed. There's almost this, we're still looking for this king and this anointed. David is almost like a type. So what I do is see that and I go, okay, within his structure, he keeps on talking about this king. Within his structure, he keeps on talking about his anointed. So I'm, a, I'm kind of a geek and I pull out my Strong's Concordance. Who owns one of these bad boys? So holler at me. They're brilliant. And I look up the word that he's using for king, which is, strangely enough, king. Perfect. I love it. And then I go, okay, well, what about anointed? What does that look like? Anointed. Strong's 5431. Messiah. Anointed one. Usually refers to pouring or smearing seared oil on a person in a ceremony of dedication, just like Samuel did, possibly symbolizing divine empowering to accomplish attack or office 
or the anointed one, the Messiah, God's chosen ultimate one, identified in the New Testament as Jesus. And this is my just concluding notion. In, in this book, we're set up with kingship, looking for it at the end of Judges. We're introduced to a form, a structure, just like in a musical. When it breaks, it's pointing at a high point, an emphasis, or a low point, or some like overflow of emotion. And within those overflows, usually within a movie, those are kind of like the highlighted, if you wanted to do chapter by chapter, this is what the chapter is about. It's about this, or it's about that, about this. We see these first two kings of Israel, Saul not being the good one. He's dead, he mourns. We see that in the middle of the book in the poem. And then at the end, we almost, almost end where we're beginning with this looking for kingship, looking for the anointed one, looking for the Messiah over Israel. David was almost there. He's kind of the type that is set up. The promise is in him and through him. Yet still, there's this theme that I would suggest in this moment, if we pay attention a little bit to the structure, is going to present one of these ideas and saying, how they structure a book is going to show us what some of the themes of that book are. And when we pay attention to that structure, we're going to get some of the meaning. So that Samuel's not just a book about David, Samuel, and Saul, but it is a, a book of Israel looking for their king, their anointed one, the anointed one, the king and the Messiah. And there's this longing in Israel, just like in Judges, this longing for the righteous judge over the nation of Israel, this longing here, we want a king over us. And God says, this, that's Samuel's argument is, we have a king, it's, it's God. We want a king over us, okay? And he, there's, the author of this book is writing it and structuring it in such a way where he's saying, let me show you the king and it's this expression of kingship and longing, and it's not this man. We're looking for the king, the anointed one. And I would say that that's emphasized, just like in a, in a musical, through how he breaks form, the author, from narrative into poetry, and then some of the repeated lines and saying, the king, the anointed one. We're looking for the Messiah. And then he ends the book, David's last words, his mighty men, and it goes on to kind of the history of the rest of the kings of Israel. All this to say, when we're reading, when it breaks form, or even when there is a form and a structure within it, pay attention to what that form is and what it's saying. Um, I have to get going now because Glenn's not here and there's some stuff I need to do. It, it's similar, I'm just going to throw this out too, it's similar in like Romans. Have you guys ever had the Sunday school question, whenever you see the therefore, ask what it's there for, which is like awesome, but at the same time, sometimes we don't back it up far enough. I love Romans chapter 12 because it's all this like, Therefore, as dearly beloved children, offer your bodies as holy sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. I'm, I butchered that quote, but that's somewhat what it says. His therefore is basically a summary of the first 11 chapters. If we pay attention to structure, we're going to see these high points and where does it turn? Why is it just changed from narrative to poetry? Why are the types changing in it or within that structure? How does that exalt what it's saying? Just like in a movie, if you take it out, you're going to miss how it fits into the structure, but if you put it in the structure, we're going to see. So Paul, you're saying, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. What is this therefore? Therefore is 11 chapters of Paul's theology of the gospel of Christ. And he lays it out in 11 chapters and says, in view of this mercy, this 11 chapters of the gospel, 
offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Just give your life to this. I've just explained it all. So structure conveys to us meaning because these authors aren't just writing. They're forming an entire letter, an entire book, or a series of books with themes and structures in mind so that when we hit high points, low points, different parts, types of poetry, discourse, narrative, whatever, it's going to convey meaning to us when we can see it in the bigger lives.